Amen. I think that's about enough to call it service. Thank you, Pastor David. That was a wonderful song. I love the part of that, that uh, my sin not in part but the whole. He's nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. We'll open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 as we continue our study of the world's greatest recorded sermon. Today we're going to continue to look at how the Lord describes the Christian's relationship in the world. So we're going to read Matthew chapter 5. The last time I preached, we looked at verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. Today we're going to look at verses 14 through 16. Matthew 5, 14 through 16 says, You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as now we turn to the preaching of your word, Father, I pray that you would Speak to your people. You would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, Father, and that the power of your Holy Spirit, God, would take your word and apply it to the lives of your people. And, Father, for those who are not in Christ today, either physically or listening through the Internet, God, that you would use this word to open up their eyes, draw them to repentance and faith in Christ alone, that you would be glorified in the preaching of your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's much, much speculation on how and why our country is in such uh, a downward spiral, if you will. It's obvious, in case you didn't know, that our country is headed in the wrong direction. Our culture is in this downward spiral of debauchery and sin and It just keeps like it's getting worse and worse and worse. And there's no doubt a departure from, if you look at 200 years ago, there's a mass departure from the original founding of our country where they had an overwhelming, obvious Christian worldview. And biblical authority that permeated every aspect of our culture. 200 years ago, America, for the most part, had a Christian work ethic had a Christian legal ethic, had a Christian familial ethic, had a Christian civil and political ethic, had a Christian education ethic, and an overall uh, Christian societal ethic. Now, while all Americans during the founding years of our country were not Christians, our country, for the most part, sought to bring all of these spheres of life into the submission to the word of God. What has happened in the last 200 years? How did we get so far away? With what, everything that's going on in our country, many people believe that God is judging our country and we're under God's judgment and definitely agree with that. But I also believe that God is judging his people, the church of Jesus Christ. As it's even said, as judgment begins in the household of God, as the apostle Peter said. 
And I believe God is judging his people for both keeping the light of the world inside the confines of church and home and by missing the entire second half of the Great Commission, which is teaching the nations all that Christ has commanded. Over the last 100 years, specifically, the Christian church has America, in America has divorced itself from the idea that Christ has authority to govern every facet of American lives. There's been a retreat mentality that really started, like I said, about 100 years ago, where the church has totally gotten out of affecting the culture for the glory of Christ and has got into a retreat mentality where the light has been squelched, hidden inside one own, one's own home or even the church. We've got this retreat mentality that Christ doesn't have anything to say to any entities outside of the church, like education. Christ doesn't have anything to say to our legal system. Christ doesn't have anything to say to the judicial system or even how our lawmakers make laws and politics. No Christians, we've been told, are to stay out of all that and leave it up to the secular world. There's, there's been this divide over the last 100 years of, of the holy and the secular. But according to the word of God, Christ has authority over all of it. Colossians 1, Christ has authority over all things, both in heaven and on earth. Well, our text today provides what I believe are further insights on how Christianity and how Christians are to impact the world for the glory of Christ. Well, we went through the Beatitudes, and if you recall, the Beatitudes described a true believer. Jesus described a true believer in the Beatitudes. And then in verse 13 and 16, after describing what a true believer is and what a true believer does, he then moves on to describe how a true believer relates to the world, the relationship you and I are to have in the world. Last time we looked at being the salt of the world and how salt permeates and preserves uh, decay, and that's what Christians are to be. Now, friends, this is the basics of Christianity. Right here, there's, no, there's, a, there's not a coincidence that the very first gospel, the very first sermon, Jesus gives the very basics of Christianity, what a Christian is, poor in spirit one who mourns over their sin, hungers and thirsts for righteousness. He describes Christianity 101. And then he describes how Christians are to be in the world and not of the world. These are just the basics. These are the foundations, but we, all, we often miss these things. So when we look at our text here, there's a few things I want to draw out of this, uh, this idea of being a light in the world, a city set on a hill. And the first thing is this. If it isn't obvious... There's no such thing as a closet Christian. This is one thing that is glaring from this text, is that there's no such thing as a closet Christian. But what do I mean by that? Somebody who says they are a Christian, but nobody in their circle knows that they love Christ, that they're born again, that they're a Christian. They're, friends, there's no such thing as a closet Christian. Look at the analogy that Jesus gives here. Look at verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. And then he gives the analogy of, of a lamp. 
And no one lights a lamp in verse 15 and puts it under a basket, but under a lampstand. Jesus gives these two ridiculous illustrations to his disciples and gives it to us to let us know that when you're a true believer, when you are exemplifying the Beatitudes, making you a true believer, there's no missing that people will know. You know, back in those days, most often cities were uh, purposely built on a hill for many reasons. And you can't miss it. You can't miss it. At night, you would have lamps that were lit and you could see where that city was. It It was obvious to the rest of the region that there was a city there. And then he gives the idea on lighting a lamp. Back then, they had these small little lanterns with oil and a wick, and they would light the lamp. It would be very ridiculous to light the lamp and then put it under a basket or under the bed. He gives an analogy in other gospel. It's so ridiculous. Jesus is telling us that when you are a true disciple of Christ, the world is going to know. Jesus is telling his disciples that there's no hiding your faith. It will be evident for all to see. So there's no such thing as a closet Christian. That's one obvious point in the text. The next thing we see here is that devoid of Christianity or devoid of Christians, the world is in utter darkness. When Jesus says you are the light of the world, when he says you, that personal pronoun is in the emphatic. So he's really, he's saying you and you alone are the light of the world. So think about the implications here, friends. Without Christians, without God's people whom he redeemed and saved on the world, in the world, then the world is in total darkness. The world is in utter darkness, and God has chosen feeble men and women like you and me to be the only thing that would give true light in this world. And God has chosen the weak to exemplify his glory uh, in this world. So next, three, and I'm going fast here. We're going to camp out on this next one because I want to I want to unpack what it means to be the light of the world and what it means when Jesus says to let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works. What, what does that really mean? Well, first I want to go to the negative and what it doesn't mean. When Jesus says to shine your light, let your light so shine before men so that they see your good works. This is often, I believe it's a shortcoming, uh, to be interpreted as humanitarian efforts. That's not what this text means. It, it doesn't mean to go out and just do humanitarian efforts, devoid of the glory of Christ, to just do good things that the culture thinks is good. That's not what he's talking about here. Who did he give these, this command to? He gave it to the disciples. So look at the early church, friends. Did they go around just doing humanitarian works? No, because if they did, well, they didn't. They totally missed what Jesus was saying, but they didn't. The new church would have gotten it all wrong, but that's not the case. Good works, just doing good things that's divorced of the dependence and grace of Jesus Christ results into your own glory. When you go out and do humanitarian efforts, when you go out and do such great things and you're praised by other people and, you, and there's devoid of the glory of Christ, who gets the glory? 
you get, you get the glory. So that's not what Jesus is talking about here. When he says, let your light so shine before men so that they may see your good works, he's also not talking about just being a nice person so that nobody ever says anything bad about you. Being such a nice person where everybody says how good you are and, and gives you praises, that's not what he means when he says, let your light so shine before men. Uh, in fact, Luke six twenty six says, Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, All who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. And so that may seem contradictory. When he says live a godly life in 2 Timothy and you're going to be persecuted. But then in his text he says, Let your light shine so they see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So which is it? Do we do, we do good works and live a godly life so that God's glorified or we're persecuted? Well, it's not an either-or, it's a both-and. What God does when we are the light of the world, we suffer persecution, but also God will use you shining your light of Christ. God will use that to draw others so that they will come to Christ and they will glorify God who is in heaven. So letting your light shine, what does it mean? Well, first we must understand, brothers and sisters, that we have no light in ourselves. When he says you are the light of the world, we first must understand as sinners saved by grace that we have absolutely no light in and of ourselves. Christ is the light. Christ even said himself that I am the light. Not only that, the coming Messiah from the Old Testament was prophesied as the light. Isaiah 42, 6 says, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. He's speaking of his servant, the, the coming Messiah. He said, I will hold you by the hand and watch over you, and I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. Isaiah 49, 6 says something similar, speaking of his servant, the coming Messiah. He says in the latter half of the verse, he says, You are a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Isaiah 63, Nations will come to your light, and the kings to the brightness of your rising. In our scripture reading today, Simeon, who held Jesus Christ in his arms, quoted the passage from Isaiah 49, Isaiah 42, excuse me, where he said in Luke 2.32, he said, A light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. So from the beginning, it's always been known that the coming Messiah would be the light of the world. Paul and Barnabas, while speaking to the crowd of Jews and Gentiles, said this in Acts 13.47. He said, For you, sorry, for so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So he's quoting that passage in Isaiah. The opening verses of John, John 1, 4, and 5, says, In him, in Christ, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Jesus said numerous times that he is the light of the world. 
John 12, 46. John 8, 12, where he said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And Jesus said in John 9, 5, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So from the beginning of the Bible to the end, the only one that has true light in a dark and dying world is the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He was, is, and always will be the light of the world. He is the son of righteousness. He is the light. We don't have any light within ourselves, but all we can do is reflect the light of Christ. And that's the key to this passage when he says, you're the light of the world. We have no light in and of ourselves. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, which is the light. But we, all we can do is reflect the light of Christ. It's as one commentator put it, Christ is the sun and we are the moon. We have no light, but we can shine bright when we allow the light of Christ to shine in us. Amen? So how does that work? How, do, how practically speaking does that work? How can we shine the light of Christ? How can we reflect the light of Christ? By being like Christ. It's as simple as that. Amen? That's Christianity 101. We were predestined to become conformed to the image of Christ. Romans 8, 29. Colossians 2, 6 says, As you have received Christ Jesus, so walk in him. We are to live and do as Christ lived and as he did. So how did Christ live? How do you sum up Christ's life? In perfect obedience to the word of God. Perfect obedience to the word of God. So friends, remember, man's duty to God is to obey him perfectly. Theologians call this the covenant of works. This was the covenant God made with Adam in the garden, that if you do this, you will live. And Adam failed that. We're still under this covenant of works in a sense of, if you want to live, you must live perfectly obedient to the word of God. And if you fail just once, you've broken that covenant, and the only thing left for you is the wrath and punishment of God for your sin. But Jesus Christ came as the second Adam, the one uh, the one that could do what Adam could not do. And he lived a life of perfect obedience to the law of God. The life that you and I can't live. And he did it for us. But he didn't do it for us so that we could just go and live how we want to live. Okay, that's called antinomianism. Well, I'm, I'm saved by grace. I'm saved by faith. I, I said the sinner's prayer. And I don't have to obey the word of God perfect. I mean, I could just, you know, do whatever I want. I know God's word says this. But I want to do this, and you know, God forgives. It's called presuming upon the grace of Christ. And I question somebody's salvation if they have that mentality. You know what? I was baptized. I said the sinner's prayer. Uh, many claims of you, I was, had a born-again experience, but you live in open rebellion. You don't care to obey the word of God. I question that person's true faith, if they ever had saving faith. Because a regenerate heart wants to do what Christ did. And that was to obey God's word. And that's how we reflect the light of Christ is when we live in obedience to the word of God. So when we're shining our light before men, or we are shining our light before men, 
when we walk in the obedience of the word of God. But listen, it's when we are obeying the whole counsel of God. When we're obeying the whole counsel of God. When we live with every area of our life in submission to the word of God, when we're growing in sanctification, that's how we are shining the light of Christ. So, what areas of your life are you failing to offer full submission to the word of God? There's no, there's no dividing your Christian life, brothers and sisters. Either every part, of the wor- every part of your life is in submission to the word of God, to submission to Christ, or your life is not in submission to the word of Christ. Amen? Now, there may not be a perfect submission. I get that. We are not perfect. And there may be struggles. But what area of your life are you struggling with to give over submission to the word of God? Well, I know God's word says that, but you know what? I'm, this is just how I am. Okay? How many of you have ever thought that? That's just my personality. I know God's word says this. Uh, friends, we have to repent of that type of thinking. If God's word says it, we need to have an obedience that is, yes, I'll do it. And I'll strive to do it. And when I fail, I'll repent. And I'll do it and I'll try again. Proverbs 4.18 has this idea of shining the light in darkness. It says, But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that shines brighter and brighter until the full day. This is the, this is the illustration of a believer's walk in sanctification, is it not? As we grow in sanctification, we become more and more like Christ and we become like this proverb where it, we shine brighter and brighter until the full day, until the day that we leave this earth. Our light will shine brighter and brighter each day because we're coming more and more in conformance to the Word of God, to Christ, and as we are mortifying the flesh, as we're, we're carving off those sin tendencies and the things which do not please God and the sin which easily besets us, when, we, when we're shaving those things off and we have a, a tenacity and a gazelle-like uh, heart to rid ourselves of that sin, we shine brighter and brighter and brighter. Why? Because Christ can shine and reflect his light in us to a lost and dying world. Now later on, in Matthew 6, 1, in the same sermon, Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them, otherwise you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus, which is it? You say here to shine your light in front of men, right? He says to do your good works so that men can see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And then in the same sermon, he says, beware of practicing your righteousness before men. The difference is the motive, brothers and sisters. Look, if you look at verse six, uh, chapter 6, verse 1, he says, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. That's the difference. What is your motive? When you're out and about, when you're even in a family context, in the neighbor context, in work context, and you're shining the light, you're, you're doing the right thing, you're obeying the word of God by your actions, your, your, what you say and what you do, what is your motivation behind that? If it's to be seen by others, then Matthew 6, 1 applies to you. Beware. Beware. But if it's for the glory of Christ... 
If your motive is to glorify Christ, to shine his light so that you can glorify him, then you're Matthew 5, 14. You're shining the light. So what's your motive? That's the difference between those two texts. When we bring the word of God to bear on every sphere of life, we are shining the light of Christ. When we bring the word of God and submission to the word of God in every sphere of life, we are shining and we are being the light of the world. So where does this start? First must start with your personal life. Before you can go shine your light before men, you need to make sure that your light is shining when nobody's watching. Amen? So it starts with your personal life and then extends to your family life. Before you can shine a light to men in public, you need to learn to shine your light in your own family, in your own household, how you treat your spouse, how you treat your siblings, how you treat uh, those in your own house. Are you shining the light in your own home? Are you reflecting the glory of Christ to your kids? Are you reflecting the glory and the submission to the word of God to those in your own home? But it doesn't stop there. Next, it should extend in your church life. You know, Jesus said, the world will know you by your love for one another. So are you shining the light in the local church and in the church universal with other brothers and sisters in Christ? But again, it doesn't stop there. Shining the light of Christ means bringing the word of God, submission to the word of God, bringing the glory of Christ upon every single sphere in the world. He said, you're the light of the world. The light of the world, not the light of your Christian circles, not the light of the church, although our light shines everywhere, but we're the light of the world, meaning this, we're not to keep our light beholden to certain spheres of our culture. We are to shine the light by bringing to bear the word of God in every cultural sphere, seeking, seeking Christ to reign in each of those areas. This includes our employment. This includes our, our business, your social sphere, your neighborhood, your economic sphere, your political sphere, legal sphere, educational sphere, everything. Everything we must be seeking to bring the glories of Christ to bear upon this culture. So what does light do? Light dispels the darkness. Light permeates the darkness, right? There's nowhere when light is... is shining in a dark room there's nowhere for the darkness to hide so friends do you see the analogy so we can't be shining the light and 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 again what's the light the light is christ the light is displaying the glories of christ the truth of god's word we can't just shine that light in certain spheres in our life but hide it when we go in other spheres of our life that's not shining that's not being the light of the world so we have, to, we have to bring the light of Christ into every area of our life. We can't, we can't just leave that and, and make the excuse that so many Christians have made that I have made in the past that, uh, you know, that's not, that's not the Christian's sphere. Just leave that to the, to the secular world and just focus on these areas. We can't leave that because, friends, there's no autonomy There's no neutrality when it comes to the things in our culture. If we leave it to the culture to figure things out, then what are you left with? Look at what the religion is now in our country. It's humanism, isn't it? There's no more Christ reigning. 
You know, I just read the other day, do you know what's engraved uh, in Washington at the Supreme Court? Who's engraved there? Anybody know? Someone in the Bible. Moses. Moses with the Ten Commandments. Why? Because our legal system was founded upon the morality encompassed and enshrined in the Ten Commandments. If we leave everything in all those cultural spheres left, if we leave it all to the secular world, we see what happens. They interject their religion of humanism, uh, which we know leads to Marxism and uh, oppression uh, and tyranny upon the Christian church. So there's no sphere that must be off limits. Now, it just so happens we saw a wonderful example this week when Pastor John MacArthur wrote an open letter to Governor Gavin Newsom of California. Dr. MacArthur didn't say, you know what, we're just going to leave and keep in our little church and let, let the... Let the debauchery of California continue to slide. This was his civil magistrate. It's his governor. And he wrote an open letter to him rebuking him, giving him a stern rebuke uh, for his open rebellion to God. Uh, listen to what some, of, some of what he said. And, and I encourage you to read the whole letter. I'm just going to give you some inserts. He said, quote, Almighty God says in his word, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Proverbs 14.34. He says, Scripture also teaches that it is the chief duty of any civic leader to reward those who do well and punish evildoers. Romans 13.1-7. You not only failed in that responsibility, you routinely turn it on its head, rewarding evildoers and punishing the righteous. The word of God pronounces judgment on those who call evil good and good evil, Isaiah 5.20. And yet many of your policies reflect this unholy, upside-down view of honor and morality. And he goes on to say, quote, In mid-September, you reveal to the entire nation how thoroughly rebellious against God you are when you sponsored billboards across America promoting the slaughter of children whom he creates in the womb. You further compounded the wickedness of that murderous campaign with a reprehensible act of gross blasphemy, quoting the very words of Jesus from, Matthew, from Mark 12, 31, as if you could somehow twist his meaning and arrogate his name in favor of butchering unborn infants. You used the name of the words of Christ to promote the creed of Molech. End quote. Well, he goes on. He doesn't leave it there. He goes on by calling him to repentance and faith. He gives him the gospel. And near the end, he says, quote, Our church and countless Christians nationwide are praying for your full repentance. Please respond to the gospel. Forsake the path of wickedness you have pursued all your life. Turn to Christ, ask for forgiveness, and use your office to advance the cause of righteousness, as is your duty, instead of undermining it, as has been your pattern, end quote. Well, in preparing for the sermon, I thought this was a wonderful illustration of shining the light. John MacArthur was being the light in the world. He wasn't just going about and doing humanitarian efforts for humanitarian efforts' sake. He was shining the light by bringing full obedience to the Word of God, every area of his life, which included, which included calling out an unjust civil magistrate. That was his civil authority with the governor. And he took 
the word of God outside the church. He took the light of Christ and exposed an evil, an evil ruler, called him to repentance, and told him of his duty to govern righteously. Amen. Now let's look at verse 16 here in our text. Let your light shine before man so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. I want to address the idea of good works because there's some confusion in our culture on what it means when it says to have good works. Well, the Apostle Peter says something very similar in 1 Peter 2.12. He says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers that they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. So this text reminds me of grace to you and their ministry, actually, that they were, they kept their behavior excellent among the Gentiles, among the pagan, pagan city of Los Angeles. Uh, they kept their behavior excellent. They, do, they did good deeds so that when they started to find the government during COVID and started meeting again, you had civil magistrates that were agreeing with him and saying, we're not going to, we're not going to keep you from meeting. And because they were known in the community, uh, not just for doing humanitarian efforts, but as people of conviction, as people of consistency, as people who had love for one another. And that's what this text here says. But what are these good works? Well, our confession of faith actually has a chapter on good works. I'm going to read some of that. 1689, Confession of Faith. Chapter 16, paragraph 1 says this. Good works are only such as God has commanded in his holy word, and not such as without the warrant thereof are devised by men out of blind zeal or upon any pretense of good intentions. In other words, the only thing that we can point to as, yes, that's a good work, is contained as a commandment in God's holy word and, is, and does not include anything outside of that, however zealous and however much pretense of good intentions there may be for that. Uh, it goes on to say, These good works done in obedience to God's commandments are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. And by them, by these good works, believers manifest their thankfulness, strengthen their assurance, edify their brethren, and listen to this, and adorn the profession of the gospel. Stop the mouths of the adversaries and glorify God, whose workmanship they are, created in Christ Jesus thereunto, that having their fruit unto holiness that they may have the end eternal life. When we hear the thing of doing good works, we have to, again, recognize that we've been negatively affected by our culture. And, and doing good works, again, as I mentioned earlier, is not just doing humanitarian efforts. It's not just feeding the poor or helping a neighbor change his tire, volunteering for a nonprofit, which, friends, those aren't bad things. Those are good things. And you're actually loving your neighbor by doing them. But, friends, even moralistic non-believers and atheists do good works with that definition, do they not? Matter of fact, I've met a lot of atheists that are nicer than a lot of Christians. I've, let a, I've met a lot of atheists who volunteer their time more uh, for nonprofits uh, to do things that help humanity. But that's not what these good works are doing. Because what that does, as I mentioned earlier, all it does is get people's eyes on you. Wow, that person's so good. 
They're always volunteering. They're always doing this. They're always helping a neighbor out. But there's no glory of Christ. There's no pointing people to Christ. And the person gets the glory and not God. So what do good, look, what do good works look like in everyday life? Well, here's one example. When everyone around you is compromising and you stand on the truth. Friends, that's a good work. When family gives you a hard time for your biblical convictions. Anybody been there? And tries to get you to even compromise. Or says you're too narrow-minded. When you don't compromise, when you lovingly Tell them you can't compromise. You've done a good work. You've shined the light of Christ. When the guys at work are being unfaithful with their eyes and mouths and you don't take part, gentlemen, that's doing a good work. When those around you see the love that you have for other Christians, as Jesus said, they will know you by your love for one another. You've done a good work. When you offend somebody because you lovingly tell them that because of their beliefs and their profession that they're headed on the wrong road unless they repent and come to Christ, you've done a good work. When you lovingly rebuke your civil magistrate as John MacArthur did this past week, you've done a good work. Or moms, when you make Christ preeminent in every area of your child's education, you are doing a good work, and you're shining the light of Christ. I can't think of many better good works with all the families we have in here than focusing on multi-generational faithfulness. You know, if the Lord shall tarry, I, I was challenged the other day, I was telling um, someone this, I was challenged the other day, we've grown up knowing like the Lord is near, and he is, the Lord is coming, and he is. But what if we were still, I was asked this question, what if we were still in the early time of the church? You ever thought about that? Now, a lot of things may point to say that, well, yeah, Christ is near. But you know what? Every generation from the time of Paul, every generation thought that the Lord was coming in their lifetime. You see that all throughout the ages. But what if we were still in the early church? What if we still had another 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 years? What better good works could we be doing to work hard to instill multi-generational faithfulness to the next generation, to raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, to instill biblical convictions uh, in them, to live in the world but not of the world, to teach them, to teach them the, the empty systems of the world and how to lovingly refute them, how to argue and debate these uh, humanistic philosophies and how to do it with gentleness that God may grant them repentance. I can't think of many better works than that. Uh, but again, it doesn't end there. The, the light of Christ must permeate every aspect of our lives. And what is the result? What is the result? Light dispels the darkness. It exposes darkness. It penetrates the darkness. But what light also does, it also leads people. When they see light, they know they need to go that way. 
And that's when we shine our light. We're showing people, okay, this is the way. And whether they even know it or not, God uses your life. God uses the light that you shine of Christ to get people to, to they don't even know why. They, they, I need to know that person. I need to know what's different about them. They have peace in the midst of this turmoil. They have joy in the midst of this country that's going to hell in a handbasket. I need to know that person. And that's what God uses when we walk in obedience to the word of God, when we walk in obedience to the whole counsel of God, when we love others, brothers and sisters, not just in deed, but we love them enough to speak in word, in word and deed. To be the light of the world, we first must have the light of Christ be shined on you. To be the light of the world, you first must be born again. To be the light of the world, you must have the light in you. Jesus said, I am the light. He who comes to me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So my friends, my question as I close is, has God shined his light upon you? Has God caused you to be born again where you can look back and you may not know what point in your life, but you can look back and you say, yes, I was in darkness there, but now by the grace of God, he's caused me to be born again. And now I have the light of Christ shining in me, although imperfectly. So friends, do you have the light of Christ? Children, do you have the light of Christ living in you? Before you can be a light to the world, you have to have the light of Christ. So I encourage you, if you're unsure if you have the light within you, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon his name. Ask him. Lord, have you saved me? Am I saved? Seek him in his word and do it until the point of exhaustion, until you can know that you know that, yes, I am born again. I have the light of Christ. And now I can take that light and I can shine it upon the world. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you, God, for being the light, for being the light of life, Lord, as the Apostle John said, that in you there's no darkness. Father, I thank you that by your grace you transfer me to the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved Son. Oh, Father, I pray that everyone here, God, has, has been transferred by the, by the power of your Holy Spirit from the domain of darkness, that they've been transferred into the domain of your Son, in the light. Oh God, I pray that you would help us, Lord. Use this word, God, convict us. God, convict me of areas of my life where I'm not shining the light, where I'm shining my own glory, my own good works, my own gifts. And Father, may we repent of shining our own goodness and taking the glory. Father, help us, God, to mortify the flesh to seek obedience to the word of God. Lord, I pray that you would search our hearts. God, help us to know, Lord, what area of our life that we're not living in submission to you and your word, that we would repent and we would seek. Father, even though it may go against our very nature of who we are, God, help us to seek to obey you in that area of our life. Help us to know our besetting sins, Lord. Help us to recognize them so that we may shine the light of Christ, that those out there would see our good works and realize that it was Christ and not us 
so that they would glorify our Father who's in heaven. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.